Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Emily Erickson, who is Associate Professor of Sociology at Yale and the Academic Director of the Fox International Fellowship. We're going to be talking about her new book, Trade and Nation, How Companies and Politics Reshaped Economic Thought. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, This is a fascinating book. Um, It was one of my summer reading books. Um, It it does so many things at once, actually, that I kind of hope we we get to do justice to all of the different um, elements and and different kind of facets of of the book uh, over the course of of our discussion. Um, And there's stuff going on about economics, history of economics. Um, There's stuff that is you know, about the kind of appropriate methods in, in, in sociology, so some really, really interesting methodological innovations. But also, actually, there's, I guess, a kind of story uh, that you're, you're trying to tell with with the book that, that's a, about kind of social, political and, uh, and economic change um, as much as it is about kind of theories and, and ideas um, that are going on um, with economics. So maybe we'll start with, with, with two things. The first thing is... What actually got you interested in writing about the history of economics and, and I guess, the kind of history of economic theory? Well, um, so it it took a little while, actually. I mean, I'm an economic sociologist, but I I didn't really start start there. I actually started uh, as an undergraduate in history at UC Berkeley. I I took a seminar, and one of the books we read was Islands of History by Marshall Solins, and I just sort of fell in love with that. I mean, it kind of drew me from, you know, it's a combination of history and anthropology and social science. It kind of drew me from history into sociology and it's about the encounters between Europeans and Polynesian, Melanesian um, Islanders. And, uh, and they meet and there's this incredible transformation of the social structure of both societies. So, I was drawn to this era, um, uh, the early modern era, and I was interested in looking at encounters between societies. And that led me to study the English East India Company. Um, And while I was doing research and and working on the English East India Company, um, which I have another earlier book on on that company, um, I noticed something that I thought was, was really sort of odd, which is that almost all of the extremely important economic texts from the 17th century are written by by the owners of these companies, these large overseas trading companies. And um, that just seemed pretty notable uh, to me. And I wondered what the connection was. And, and that's that's really what drew me into the topic. It, it's probably worth actually introducing um... I, it's wrong to call them the kind of heroes of the story. That's not not at all in kind of <laughs> appropriate language. But but the writers of, of these texts are, are a really kind of fascinating group, and you've alluded to um, them as a, a, you know as a kind of group that often owns key companies that are about to benefit from 
from particular um, political changes, but also, you know, benefiting from the, some of the economic theories they're putting forward. But, but this kind of, I guess, sort of merchant class that you're interested in, who, who are they and, and why are they important to the story? Yeah, well, so the, I mean, the book covers a large range. So it's fifteen fifty to seventeen twenty. So there's a a lot of different people, um, but the merchant authors uh, were often, but not always, the owners or or um, principal investors in a large monopoly overseas trading companies, which was sort of the way that large scale. Um, or large-scale trade was conducted was through companies that were constituted as monopolies, the exclusive rights to specific areas of trade. Um, but the the actual people, there are some people that really stand out as being kind of more important, having more influence. And so there's and there's a couple of debates that seem to be more prominent and and had more influence over time. The first one was this really interesting bullyness debate. And here we have three figures that that are important and, and sort of uh, probably give a better sense of um, what type of people were engaged in this kind of publishing at the time. And there's Gerard de Molaines, um, who is a, a, ma- a master of the mint, um, uh, very much sort of an elite intellectual uh, there, but also engaged in commercial pursuits. But he's much closer to the government, sort of, a, uh, or the state, a, a little bit more of a kind of an old school for the time approach to economic theory. Um, and really sort of a bullionist. I mean, sort of unsurprisingly, he's focusing, he's, you know, uh, he's making his living or making um, revenue from the mint, and he's focused on clipping, just, you know, um, cutting down coins that that people, uh, they cut off the edges of coins in order to get money um, and accumulate wealth. And that he thought this was a really... um, pernicious activity was certainly illegal, uh, but he thought it also did a lot to depress trade. But he was on one side and on the other side of this was uh, a man named Thomas Munn, who was um, one of the principals uh, of the English East India Company, and another man named Edward Misselden, who was, um, he was in the Merchant Adventures, but he actually really wanted to get into the English East India Company and get stock there. Uh, and they took a different side. Um, and unsurprisingly, <laughs> their side, uh, the, the side that they took was uh, less of a, a bullionist position. He was saying that it wasn't the amount of bullion in the, the kingdom um, that determined the wealth of and prosperity of the nation, which was the position Edward Misselden was taking. Um, they, were, they instead said that it was the amount of trade. Uh, and that really worked for them because uh the English East India Company had to export bullion to other countries in order to purchase the um, the cottons and the spices that they uh, made their profits from. Early on in the book, I mean, you've captured that debate so well. And early on in the book, you kind of lay out the way that that debate got pretty kind of vicious um, in, 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 in terms of um, the, the, the kind of, um, I guess, economic, uh, theoretical, but also kind of, you know, quite practical economic conflicts. And and I'm glad you mentioned the the East India Company because in in the first um, 
half, first third of the book, that, that's really one of the kind of key institutions. And you mentioned it, it, it's trade in role, but I wonder if you could sort of introduce it a little bit more to the reader. You, know, you mentioned things like having monopolies on, on, on trade in, in particular um, areas. And, and, and why was it so central, um, I guess, both in terms of what it actually did, but also in terms of um, how its practices were, were theorised by some of the authors you're interested in? Well, the English East India Company was a huge company, um, and so and this is in an era where companies were a, a novel invention. So, trade and commerce um, for most of human history was organized at the scale of um, maybe partnerships um, or individual merchants, uh, and um, this is something that was really different about what was going on in Europe. Uh, was that trade began to be organized in terms of these large bodies of of, of individuals, uh, and um, the English East India Company was one of the largest of this this new mode, this new way of organizing trade that had entirely different capacities than um, than say um, a, a partnership or an individual might have. Right? Um, I mean, to be honest, I think that. The, the, the companies, the rise of the companies is one of the things that sort of changed the trajectory of, of European history and, and made it seem so different from the trajectory or, or what was going on in other parts of the world. Uh, so the, 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 the English East India Company is really important just because it's one of these, um, these new companies, but it, they, it was also incredibly profitable for the people that were engaged in this trade. The pe- they really um, made a killing bringing in goods that were relatively common in the sort of um, in, in the Indonesian archipelago or and the uh, the Indian subcontinent and the the spices the cottons um, coffee you know things that if you thought of your life without these goods it would be greatly impoverished. I mean, I, it was very hard to think of not having um, ceramics, uh, not having cotton to, to clothing. Um, all of these things, they were just incredibly popular in Europe. And so the, the, the East India Company made lots and lots of money. Um, and in order to do so, it it's kind of challenged some assumptions about how um, how wealth was constructed, it, I, I would say it kind of opened up the possibility of seeing how expansion of trade could lead to national economic development. I mean, you see these these things happening, but it challenged the assumption that at the time that the way that you build wealth was by accumulating more gold. And, you know, so, I mean, it's kind of a very interesting question about how, where does value reside? And it wasn't... Um, well, people had different ideas about where value resided at the time. So, uh, and a commonly accepted position was that it, it had something to do with the metallic, the intrinsic metallic nature of gold and silver. Uh, most people don't don't believe that that's true at this point. Um, but because the East India Company exported bullion to Asia in order to get these goods. And by the way, the reason that they exported bullion to Asia was because Asia had no interest in the goods that were being produced in England at the time. It just, they, they were just sort of in, inferior in comparison with the quality of the goods in Asia. Um, so they had to produce the one thing that they were interested in from Europe, which was gold and silver. 
and um, and they they had a thriving trade, but that was sort of that was different. That was that was different than the expectations that people had then, which was what you needed in order to have a thriving trade was to accumulate more, more, and more gold and silver. So I would say that's just that part of the equation is is in some sense kind of just a historical accident that it happened to be that the East India Company had to um, pursue straight in such a way that sort of fundamentally questioned kind of assumptions about prevailing ideas of uh, um, the value of, of metals. If that's one of the key institutional players, and you'd mentioned um, the debates uh, with, with um, the kind of late medievalists and, and the, the, the new emerging mercantilists earlier, who, who was actually kind of... Um, what's the word, consuming uh, these debates? Who was was the kind of audience? Who, who was it that was thinking about, you know, the East India Company as a, an important institution for growing national wealth and, you know, thinking in terms of um, pr- producing um, gold and silver to exchange for, as you say, you know, everyday basics that we think of as coffee, ceramics, et, et cetera, although, we, you know, were quite, quite luxury goods back then. Yeah, who, who was the kind of, the kind of audience for, for these debates? Well, the audience for the works was very much the um, the government actors, state actors. Um, so maybe the Privy Council, the Parliament, the Crown. The, these, uh, the, these are the people that are making decisions about, in particular, whether or not to extend monopoly privilege to these companies. Um, so the companies, they depended on, or they certainly thought of themselves as depending upon the monopoly privileges in order to make the highest profits possible. Uh, and they depended upon the government to ensure those those privileges. So when people made arguments about whether or not the English East India Company deserved its monopoly, um, they were addressing the, uh, the the Privy Council at the early part of the century and the later part of the century, the Parliament, in order to sort of try to persuade them to take a position on that. So the people in the English East Indian Company, of course, they want their monopoly privileges extended. So they're making all the arguments that they can about how the export of bullion is actually beneficial to the government in some way because, you know, it increases overseas tax revenue. Uh, and then people that are outside of the company are saying, no, 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 they're destroying the nation. They're just, you know, <laughs> that is draining wealth away and they don't want the, the privileges to be um, continued. So they beca- and often, in fact, it's not really an argument um, between people that believe in monopoly or not, but people that want the privileges for themselves. And but when they make those arguments, they're making them to the to the state. What you described so far in terms of institutions, audiences, and, and, and writers kind of sounds like a sort of conventional book. Um, it's the kind of you know history of, uh, of economic thought that um, almost you, you'd sort of expect to read. But, but one of the elements that goes beyond just your, your intriguing thesis about um, the role of, of, of the kind of commercial merchant class in in being economic philosophers is also your methods. And I wonder if you could kind of introduce, I suppose, the sort of computational approach that you take, um, and maybe we'll get into some some examples. Um, I mean, it's, it's tricky because there are lots of kind of really 
wonderful and fascinating things like illustrations in the book. But um, maybe we'll get into some examples of the computational approach. But but before we do that, it'd be good to hear about your methods for the book. Sure. I, I um, really wanted to think, I mean, and partly this is my... A commitment to sociology as a discipline. As I wanted to not just think about a few, um, a few important individuals or a few unique texts. I wanted to think about a sort of a cultural shift and um, the way it spread across the entire literature. So I'm assuming and, and certainly come to the um, the material thinking that you know it's it's not just this one. Um, you know, moment of genius that transforms um, uh, a sort of way of thinking about things. Instead, it's a, it's an entire sort of um, it, it's, it's a an entire literature. You know, it's it's the good thinkers, the amazing, brilliant thinkers, and the somewhat more mediocre thinkers. Uh, it's it's all the the sort of the entire population. If we're going to see a cultural shift, it has to. It'd be not just what one person thinks, but what becomes commonly accepted among all of the people that are sort of participating in the discourse. So the the hard part about uh, thinking about the, the literature more systematically and trying to include as much as possible um, in order to see these kind of broad changes in discourse is of course that you know you have to read quite a lot of books, um, and sometimes the literature is too large for any one person to be able to read all of the books in their own lifetime, or at least in some kind of reasonable amount of time. So, um, I mean, in the early modern era, there's not as many books as there are now, so it's more possible, but it's still quite a lot of books. <laughs> so, um, and it's definitely quite a lot of books to sort of do a kind of a deep, um, uh, a deep reading of uh, and include in an analysis. So, what I thought it was really important to do was to bring in some of these n- newer methods of computational analysis in order to engage in this kind of systematic appraisal of what's going on in the literature and what are the shifts and how did they spread across the entire discourse. So I did. I, I used um, topic modeling, which is a way of um, it's it's a way of uh, analyzing a large corpus. Uh, what it what it does is sort of inductive. It looks for the co-occurrence of certain words within different segments of text. You don't want to look at co-occurrence of words in a book because that's a lot of co-occurrence, right? So you want to look uh, at how it does it more sort of like segments of text, like uh, every 500 words or so. And then the words that co-occur frequently become sort of topics and you can look at their prevalence over time. And that gives you a sort of an idea of what what ideas fit together, how they change over time, and, and you can see um, certain sort of combinations increase and certain combinations decrease. Uh, so, for example, in the book, what, one of the, the kind of important um, topics at the beginning was God, man, honor, I think it was, and that sort of shifts over time, and then um, trade, nation, and company become more important over the course of the century. Uh, and that's that's not just in these, you know, um, texts that people look back on and like Joseph Schumpeter said, oh, this is really important at the time. It's, it's something that happens in uh, a lot of different texts, some that became uh, a little better known uh, and some that were almost not remarked upon at all. 
you mentioned sort of how, how things spread um, and, you know, you'd kind of alluded to in, in what you'd said there, sort of the marginality of certain texts and certain words and the shift from what we think of as the kind of classic set of medieval tropes to a more uh, modern set of, of, of economic uh, language. And I was also intrigued by, I think it's the fourth chapter, um, where y- you talk about how the merchant authors were also at the centre of important networks um, between, you know, kind of being key players in things like uh, the English East India Company and, and being related to, you know, bits of, of government and, and stuff like this. And I, and I guess if, you know, one element of the computational approach is uh, modelling topics and, and, and key themes, the, the other is thinking about the people involved as well. Yes, that that is true. So the, and the other, it's this the slightly less um, novel or slightly less new uh, side of computational methods, which is social network analysis. And social network analysis, is, I think, is is I mean, almost absolutely essential, at, at least bringing that lens to understanding any kind of historical transformation, just because um, people's relationships are so important, uh, and their the relationship to the field of power. These things they um, have pretty significant impacts on the kinds of decisions and actions that that people take over time and social network analysis helps you sort of lay that out and, and in a sense kind of quantify it and again al- allowing you to think about it not just as one person's position but you know the uh, a sort of a the positions of a population of people with respect to each other and um, different sort of locuses of power in society so in this case, it matters quite a lot that the uh, the merchants that are writing the texts they, they tend to be pretty central to the commercial world, um, commercial relationships, and, and and the kind of network structure of that of that uh, economic sphere. But they tend to be pretty marginal in the networks of political um, power. So there's lots of different. Um, trade committees that are formed over time. Uh, and I look at how the merchants fit into the networks of individuals serving on these different trade committees and councils. And uh, they are really very much at the margins. And it, they complained about it quite a lot as well. But this, the interesting thing is, is their marginality in the, the world of the state turned out to be really important for the larger story because they, because they were marginal, they were trying to bridge this gulf to the individuals that actually held the power over um, commercial policy and that uh, um, granting of these different monopoly privileges. So they have to kind of, you know, they're sort of like shouting to get the attention of the elites that are operating within the state, making decisions that are important to their um, commercial futures. And the, the way they get their attention, you know, they try different methods. They're, sometimes they're lobbying, they say it, but this publication of these economic tracts was, was a way for them to try to get the attention of these state actors to convince them to take the actions that they hope they would convince or that they would take. It, it's really interesting because one sort of reading of this um, the use of economic theory to kind of persuade uh, and I guess kind of pay off in terms of, you know, material interests being served is that, you know, we, we've got a story of um, a unique combination of 
um, theory, philosophy, and then um, material interests and, and, and individual authors. But but one of the things that really intrigued me, and, and this you know is where the book sort of um, moves to it to its conclusions, was was the way that you you were really kind of interested in like checking your hypothesis. It wasn't just that you told this story of the importance of um, the merchants as, as kind of writers as, as, as emerging economists but but actually you try and systematically think through what are the other explanations that, that there could be for the the shift from a medieval to an early modern type of, of economics and, and economic theory um, and I wonder if you could just uh, pick out a, a couple of those um, you, you know you, you mentioned um, things like you know the transformations of the state so you know where you were talking about kind of uh, marginality of particular authors, you know, maybe it's that, you know, states are growing and that drives um, the changes in economic theory or, you know, is it the fact that you get the emergence of a kind of what we'd recognise as a civil society, you know, these sorts of, of things are the things that you mentioned. So, yeah, I, how did you sort of um, test your uh, your hypothesis about the merchant um, economic theorists? Well, I mean, I did. So it's true. I tried to include different types of tests in different in different chapters. And the truth is, I mean, I think it was really important to evaluate these alternative hypotheses. My first uh, guess or, uh, you know, about what was driving this transformation um, was that it was the expansion of overseas trade. So I thought, oh, and, and many people in the past, I've also thought that, you know, as trade expands, it just becomes logistically kind of more difficult and you need to kind of invent new ways of thinking about it to manage all of the resulting complexities. But I, I found pretty quickly that that that's almost certainly wasn't the case. Um, so I did want to evaluate the sort of standing theories that have been posed, um, like economic development, um, like the, the growth of the nation state, uh, growth of, of the civil sphere. Um, so what I did, what I actually fitted into a regression, a time series regression, where I'm looking at, um, which is a good way of ruling out alternative hypotheses. Uh, I'm looking at uh, when the articles are published, um, how many articles on trade are published in a year, and what in the previous year, because it takes a little bit of time for publication, you know, were there increases or decreases in state capacity? Were there um, increases or decreases in economic growth? Were there increases or decreases in um, commercial development? Um, so then I, I look at this over time, what's the association between these different sort of events and, and then rates of publication. But I also do it cross-sectionally um, with a, a comparative approach that looks at what was occurring in, in the Netherlands versus England. Yeah, that um, comparison with, 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 with the, the Netherlands, I, I thought was particularly kind of insightful because um, it's almost as if you kind of, you know, you've engaged with, I guess, you know, the kind of existing literature and, and thought through your hypothesis. But um, that, you know, really obvious kind of um, provocative question about, well, why did it happen in England? And may, maybe as we, we kind of conclude, maybe you could say a bit about, well, why did it happen in England? Why? What the Netherlands, you know, they just didn't have um, the kind of the, the right sort of merchant writers um you know there was a different kind of state configuration uh there were you know less sort of um economic interests driving the right thing what what was what was the story of of, of why we don't have a 
I guess, a kind of a, a, a Dutch tradition of, of these um, early economists? Yeah, there's there's two central reasons, um, and, and they're related. They're, they're certainly causally related. But I mean, the thing about the um, the Dutch Republic, of course, like phenomenally commercially dynamic a place, um, and the but <laughs> it's interesting. There's not there are companies in in the the Dutch setting, but there's not as many. And the reason that there's not as many is really because um, because the merchants had more control over the government, and the, the companies tended to exclude merchants. So most merchants aren't in favor of exclusive mon- monopoly privileges. So this is so, but th- that's sort of a clue as to really what the kind of pivotal reason is and it's it's that he said that the in the the dutch republic merchants were essentially in control they were in control of amsterdam which was the most powerful um of of the different sections of the um estates general so they they had no need. So if you can imagine in the context of England, the, the merchants are trying to get the attention of state actors in the context of, um, of the Dutch Republic, they're in the government. They have no need to make, they don't need to make appeals to a public in order to persuade state actors. They're already there on the floor. Their arguments can be made within the halls of government itself. So this intermediate step of publishing in the, in the public sphere which was actually ultimately very important towards the sort of flourishing of, of this style of economic thought. It just doesn't happen in there. It happened in, in the context of, a, of the Dutch case. I think I think I've said this sort of several times throughout, throughout our conversation that you know that this um, story that you tell is not just kind of fascinating, but but also it allows you to kind of weave in um, these um, you know really. Um, interesting and, and actually really important um, reflections on things like like methods um, and you know v- various um, I suppose you know new and emerging the pro- it's funny you mentioned stuff like social network analysis as being like you know yeah this is kind of standard and boring for sociologists but but actually in the context of uh, a book about economic theory and economic history I found it really really uh, kind of refreshing and, and really interesting and, and I wonder to what extent do you think there are sort of um, maybe lessons is the wrong word, but, you know, sort of possibilities that are opened up uh, in terms of what uh, historians, economists and sociologists might get from your book? Well, I do think um, that, you know, a systematic appraisal of, of these different moments. I mean, I would say, you know, changes in culture, those are broad changes that, they uh, they have to take place across the entire population. I mean, the populations create cultures, not just individuals. So I think using the kinds of tools that allow us to think about the choices and beliefs of of a large population of individuals they are really important. And to do that, I, you know, we <laughs> our brains are only um, capable of so much. I, I think we need some um, computational assistance usually to to think about it, a large number of individuals at what time making sort of complicated decisions. So I really do think that um, things like topic modeling and and definitely network analysis are just so important to understanding 
institutional and cultural change over time. And, and those are things that really matter. Um, they, they don't just matter in terms of understanding the past. They matter in terms of understanding where, where we're going in the future and, and how to make society a better place for, for everyone that, that inhabits it. Um, so, I mean, generally that, that's, that's one, one point. The, the other point though, that I would, I would like to say is, you know, um, this is about a sort of a shift in the way people thought about economics. And what's kind of interesting to me is, um, it, you know, it's a historically contingent shift from thinking about um, exchange in terms of whether it's fair and beneficial for people now, into thinking about exchange and commerce in terms of its effect on a national economic growth. And sort of, you know, its impact on sort of state capacity, really. Uh, but uh, I think hopefully that by showing, like situating the historical nature of that transformation, that it might make it possible to kind of rethink how how we think about capitalism and economics and kind of create a little bit more space to think about um, the ethics of, of commercial exchange and and bring a little bit more equity and, and fairness into how uh, we evaluate patterns of economic activity, sort of, a, sort of a moral capitalism approach. I mean, but both parts of, of your answer there in, in terms of a kind of understanding and you know, possibly change in the world, and then um, your, your, your latter point about, I guess, kind of, um, better understanding of, of things like the economic sociology of capitalism. They sound like pretty big agendas. So are you going to be uh, working on, you know, kind of similar related things? Um, you mentioned your um, previous work, you know, and, and the way that um, trade and nation kind of developed from that. And, and actually reading it, you know, there are definitely quite a few uh, possible um, new agendas that, that spring from it. Um, or is it time for something completely different? Well, no, I, I think not completely different. I think not completely different, but maybe a little bit more recent as possible. So what I've been thinking about most recently is um, the division of labor and the division of labor's impact on on, um, on society and uh, also on what conditions under which the division of labor is, is more easily achieved. And it what it's led me to in terms of another long-term project is I'm actually really interested in forms of corporate organization and the way that they relate to um, the sort of democratic project or democratization over time. I think it's a little bit more of a complex relationship than, than um, people have found up to this point. So, uh, I mean, in the early modern period, you see that the emergence of these companies, you know, it goes right along with the transformation of society into a more democratic um state and I, I i'm not i you know i i think i know i'm just at the very beginning stages of this but i think it's a, an important thing to to look at and uh, i think it'll be interesting <laughs>